Welcome to Black Feminist Rants, conversations on reproductive justice and activism. Black Feminist Rants is a podcast where we focus on reproductive justice, student activism, and what it means to be a young Black feminist today. Each episode, this podcast will serve as a safe space for us to rant about the specific issues surrounding being a Black woman and femme in the social justice landscape. We will also learn and grow as we engage with different reproductive justice and social justice topics. I am your host, Lakia Williams, and let's begin. Hey y'all, welcome back for another episode of Black Feminist Rants. This is episode 14. I know we took a little break last week because, girl, the election, the United States, all that ghetto. So, took a little break, took some downtime, and now we're back for an amazing, and amazing, and amazing episode of Black Feminist Rants. This one is called A Black Feminist Discussion on Respectability Politics, and that is literally what it is. Um, I sat down with my really good friend, Sarah Jones. She is our guest speaker for today. And we just talked about, first we talked about um, who she is and what she does for this movement. And she's done such like impressive work and she has like such a great CV. So it was really nice just hearing about her story and how she's gotten into this work and what she's doing and what she sees herself doing moving forward. And then we transition out of that conversation into just a larger discussion around respectability politics and sex positivity and reproductive justice. Um... And so, yeah, so this is like a very, um, like me and Sarah have conversations like this all the time, uh, just like a little bit more shade, a little bit more like profanities. So this is basically just like what we normally kind of talk about. Um, so some things that I say, um, it sounds like I'm saying them in absolutes, um, but I'm really just talking about like my own internalized, uh, like misogyny and anti-blackness and slut shaming and kind of just like working through those things. And so yeah i just want to like i'm sure that's pretty obvious when you listen but i just want to say that as well but this is an amazing episode i feel like it was very raw like we were just saying it how it is and how we've experienced life and especially life at our pwi that was another big part of this conversation um but it was not the focus so i know you're going to enjoy this episode so i'm going to stop talking so we can get right into it hey sarah thank you so much for joining me for this episode of black feminist rants um do you mind just introducing yourself with your name your pronouns any titles that make sense for our listeners who may not know you yes so hello everyone thank you for having me kia um my name is sarah jones sarah elizabeth jones depending on how i feel i use she her pronouns um I think the best title for me is not even a title, but it's just my identity. Um, I just really tap in to identifying as a flat Black woman from the South, um, a Black feminist, um, just dedicated to what I can do for the movement. Definitely. Um, kind of breaking away from that one that white supremacist question that I asked your title because we are not only our titles and just coming into the space with your identities because that's at the end of the day that's what matters the most so thank you for naming that um, and so for today we're going to be talking about respectability politics but before we get into that um, I just want to know Sarah can you share your reproductive justice story with us yes of course um, so for me it's like I feel like with any story tied to reproductive justice, tied to Black feminism, or tied to the Black experience. And when it's asked directly to a Black person, it's like, where do we start? You know, like, what age? It's never, like, I feel like it's almost a little abstract. Um, But for me, I'm the youngest in my family. I have an older brother and an older sister. Um, But growing up in my household, um, my mom, I think due to how taboo sex and sexuality was like in her um household growing up in her upbringing that she really didn't shy away from it with us um so we were always open about well at least she tried to make it as open as possible um about women's issues um about our body about our reproductive health um and so i've always had that in my household um growing up and then for me my sister, so my sister is 11 years older than me, um, but I witnessed, you know, at an early age, her battle with um, PCOS, polycystic ovary, ovary syndrome. Um, 
and just saw how that took a, like a big impact on her life, on her 20s, um, just different ways. You know, like you, you just have in your mind like expectations for like your young adult life. And, you know, that definitely took a mental, a physical, um, emotional toll on her. Um, so I witnessed that. And so around the age of 14, I started to take my reproductive health seriously. Um, I had like a series of problems with my mood swings, uh, with my period, with other things. And so I was very open with my mom about it. And she was like, your dad has insurance for a reason. <laughs> Let's use it, you know? And so, you know, I started birth control at an early age um, and she just made it my choice. Just made sure like whatever I was doing was all about my choice and everything. Um, but I will also say my youth, um, my youth was almost very similar to my parents who grew up around the civil rights movement, right? Because during my childhood, I had Trayvon Martin, um, Mike Brown, Alton Sterling, Sandra Bland. Just, it was an uprising of police brutality of losing Black lives and seeing how the state did not want Black people to exist, right? And so that just made me really kind of question and sit with um, the idea, not even the idea, but the reality of Black life and Black death, right? Because I, I view them to like connected, but I also view them separately and just having to like navigate what that meant. And I remember, you know, just later on in my teenage years, I never had the same I never had the same dreams as like my white peers, whatever, as far as like going off to college and meeting their husband, whatever. No, I, I had a big fear um, at an early age about bringing in black life into this world. Um, and so once I got to um, Tulane, you know how it is, Kia. <laughs> once I got to Tulane, right? I got, I from the beginning, I was very active in at Newcomb Institute at it just in places what is Newcomb Institute. Yes. Um, so Newcomb Institute, um, it, well, it used to be called Newcomb College Institute and from there. It was Newcomb College. Right. But Newcomb College uh, was, I guess you could say, the counterpart of Tulane University. So Tulane University was a southern university for white men, like look at his charter. And um, Newcomb College was um, started by um, who was it? What's her name? Not Sophie. Sophie. Yeah, Joseph Sophie P. Louise. Well, who was it? Okay, it doesn't matter. Sophie P. Louise, the daughter of Sophie Newcomb? Yes. The died? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Something like that. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so, Sophie Newcomb, Josephine Louise. Whatever. <laughs> but no, so with the Newcomb Institute, I got very involved with it early on. Um, and it's, it's due to the legacy of how it was invented for white women um, and how it is, um, you know, in this chart and everything and how it says that, you know, present day says that it's a gender equity center um, now after a few lawsuits. Um, <laughs> um, that was petty. Okay, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll stay away from it. I'm sorry. No, you can be <laughs> petty. I just wanted to name that that was petty. Okay, okay. Uh, so no, it is a gender equity center, but you know, all in all, there's still like a legacy of white feminism in the spaces. So I was active in that. And then by the end of September, my first, you know, semester of college, um, I had a chance of going to an RJ conference. I believe it was called um, Texas Women Rising and Loretta Ross was there, Sona, Sonia Renee Taylor is there. And I think that was just the space I needed for the language, um, for the community, for just the imagination that I wanted to build, right? And then November happened, Trump was elected. And by December, I remember going to the same white orgs in the same white spaces and all the white women were freaking out about like, oh no, my birth control and what about abortions? You know, just really freaking out. And I remember having to leave midway through the meeting because I was like, these women really don't get it. They don't get it. 
but no, I was at a surge event, and Kia knows a lot about surge student union for reproductive justice. Student United? Yeah, United. Students United for Reproductive Justice, right? It has reproductive justice in the name, um, but before Kia's presence, <laughs> presence and all of her hard work and dedication, it was definitely a white space. Um, and so I left midway through that meeting because it just did not sit right with me. Um, I just knew that black and brown people were fighting for the right to live, fighting for the right to work, fighting for the right to stay in this country, fighting for the right to parent, right? Um, and so I didn't think of that as a very micro issue for white women just to think about their reproductive health. Um, and then from there, I started taking more um, courses around black feminism and African feminism. And I think that's where I started to sit more um, with reproductive justice and just trying to figure out my place within it, right? And I feel like I have more, I, I feel like I have more in the, of an interest related to um, labor, which I can talk more about later on, um, but like labor as in work, um, black women and their work um, and reproductive justice. And then starting in October, I would start my doula classes um, with sister midwife productions. Um, and like, and really that came out of this summer, really thinking more about black life um, and trying to encounter that fear of what it means to bring black life into this world. Okay, so one, thank you for sharing. You said so much that I wanted to cover, but you're giving me so many great things that I kind of was forgetting what I wanted to say. But first off, um, your comment on kind of um, like being a black woman and your fear around bringing back black life into this world because of the world that we live in that is it's so it's so nice because like me and your friends and it's nice to hear you say that because at sister song there is um the birth justice team and one of the doulas was saying that she had like two or three um you know uh, birthing people and their babies wouldn't come out they weren't they weren't coming out and then she just asks like, oh, what is the gender of the baby or what is the sex of the baby? And they were all boys and the, and the girls were coming out and it was it was right around the time of George Floyd and kind of just like intuitive, intuitively thinking like these babies can feel like what's going on in the world and they're just not ready to come out. And then you saying something so similar months later, um, even though y'all don't even know each other, like just intuitively just having this feeling like as black women, knowing that um, even what's happening in the world, being in the womb, you can still feel that. And, kind of have some anxieties around that. So I just wanted to name that. <laughs> um, also, I like, did you want to speak on that? I just wanted to say one thing um, in response to that, because I feel like just how, you know, how the idea of like babies and infants and how they can feel like even before they enter into this world, they, they have this understanding. I don't know if it's fear. I don't know what emotion, I cannot name it, but that is so real. And I think another reason why I wanted to um, become a doula is because both, well, my mom adopted one of um, her kids, my brother, but for my sister and I, we were both high-risk pregnancies, right? Um, I required a C-section and she had me at the age of 43. So very high-risk, my dad was 47. Um, and I think it's, it's just like, it's a lot of anxiety there's so much anxiety around bringing kids, Black kids into this world. And oftentimes we often think it's with the parenting person, with the person giving birth, but we also have to think about what's going on in the womb as well and the um, response to its environment. Definitely. Um, and then also you were kind of connecting um, reproductive justice and birthing to kind of a Black Lives Matter movement and like police brutality. And I feel like that's something that we've seen more intentional between Black Lives Matter and the the March for Black Lives and uh, reproductive justice kind of showing that we aren't separated because it's kind of, I feel like larger society tries to frame reproductive justice as like some women's issue and Black Lives Matter as like a race issue when really, I mean, Black women, we sit at the intersection and not only, you know, women need, like literally every gender, every person needs reproductive justice. Um, to like live full autonomous lives. So I like that you kind of combine the two because I don't feel like that's really often um, expressed. And one thing I would say that I respect about you and your work and like just your black feminism, 
I'm not saying you are as an individual, but like how you understand the collective of this work and like really you understand the work of Loretta Ross as far as like we cannot look at reproductive justice as like this micro um this microcosm right is and that's what sets us apart from white feminism from just focusing on reproductive health we have to look at this as a macro um a macro theory a macro praxis right because it impacts our education it impacts our housing it impacts our environment um, it impacts the food that we eat impacts so much for us and that's why we always have to go back thinking of as something so much greater than just one thing amazing so um you mentioned that you are really interested in labor and black women in labor um i know you went to south africa recently and you did a research project on that and if i'm not mistaken you won an award for your thesis so can you talk a little bit about the work you did in south africa what it was like being in the diaspora and then um kind of becoming an intellectual and writing and winning awards and all that type of stuff <laughs> Thank you for calling me intellectual. Um, so I guess I can just start from the beginning. Um, I've always had an interest in South Africa, even from my childhood, and just like connecting um, with Africa and being a part of the diaspora, even though I know my people like may have not been from South Africa and most likely they are from West Africa, I've always had an interest. Um, and so once I got to Tulane, I decided to minor. At first I was minoring in Africana studies, but then I switched it to a major. And it was really through my courses with Professor Ima, um, Zintual Ima, um, and her work on African feminisms. And I always say African feminism with the plural on feminism, because it's, it's so vast. Um, and her work on African feminisms, in her introduction, um, well, my introduction to domestic work and domestic labor, um, because I've always came from women who were doing work in other women's houses, right? In other, in white women's houses. My, you know, black ancestors, my even my mom, going and doing work for white people, um, and how that impacted, you know, their motherhood uh, and womanhood, actually. Um, so from there. Um, I started, you know, thinking of the idea, hmm, maybe I could go abroad too. Maybe I could do my research. Um, and so when was it? Spring of 2019, I went abroad and I knew that I just didn't want to go abroad, you know, for the fun and glam of it. I wanted to do work. Um, and so I decided to go to Cape Town, South Africa. I stayed at the University of Cape Town and I worked under a labor um, sociologist. And my focus was on um, the impact of minimum wage on domestic workers in South Africa. And you probably know this from your own experience, whenever you look at a particular group, you have to be very specific about it. Um, and so I was very clear that I was looking at Black women, Black South African women. Um, and just looking at the origins of it, um, because you, when we look at South Africa, we have to understand it's a production and a project of settler colonialism and racial enslavement, right? Um, and just looking at um, domestic work and just understanding that Black women, like their labor is tied to their right to live and their right to live is how they support um, their children. Um, and just having to investigate um, what what was lost, right? What was lost when they were trying to survive, um, and and that really brought me to the intersections of reproductive justice, of knowing that due to the spatial landscape of Cape Town and South Africa, Black women were leaving their homes in the township to go into the suburbs or into the cities for months, for a year at a time, and then to work to you know bring in income for their children, but they missed out the chances of raising their own children um and so i i think that makes me think a lot about reproductive justice and what what it means to parent what it means to mother and having that choice and oftentimes um that choice is lost uh, but to get to the present day i just graduated from tulane um but i spent the past year turning the independent study from cape town into a full thesis 
um, I was awarded some grants to go back to Cape Town uh, at the end of December into January. And then in May, I was awarded, I think, the best thesis in Africana studies. I don't know the exact name, but it was, you know, like, a, it was a high honor for my thesis. Um, and I, I, I think I, I love academia. <laughs> it has its own problems, but I love academia. And I think I definitely want to continue this research and really, um, really look further into what, what it means to be a mother and a worker. Wow. So you won the award for the best thesis in the entire graduating class of your major. Can we all pause just to give a round of applause <laughs> for that? That's so amazing. Um, yeah. And then it's like, you weren't even like had the thought of like, Oh, I'm going to have a thesis. It was just like, I had this really great independent study. I had this really good work. Let me make it into a thesis. And then you won an award for it. So that's congratulations to you. Um, but there's something that you said that really stood out to me. You said that um, when talking about the black women in South Africa who would go and work in white women's homes, um, you said their labor is tied to their right to live, which I feel like really personifies like this capitalistic society that we live in and how um, the most marginalized people are the ones hit the hardest by it and how our worth is only seen by what we can produce and the labor we can provide. And even with domestic work here in the US, it's oftentimes I leave my house, go to yours, and I come back at 9 p.m. But for them, they have to go months at a time, which, I mean, definitely a reproductive justice issue. So I'm really glad that you made that correlation because I think that's spot on. Cool. Um, so thank you for that. Um, um, so now we are going to move on to our discussion about respectability politics. So just for a little bit of background, respectability politics was coined by a scholar, by a scholar named Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham in her 1993 book, Righteous Discontent, The Women's Movement in the Black Baptist Church. And so basically for this episode, we'll be discussing how respectability politics relates to Black womanhood and feminism. Um, however, respectability politics rears its head in all different sorts of ways, not just related to Black um, feminism. Um, and many Actually, I'm not going to get into that. But my first question that I wanted to talk to you about was, can you talk about how respectability politics manifests in your life and how you've had to kind of navigate the feelings of needing to be a respectable Black woman? Yes. <laughs> One thing, and of course, you already know this, but thank you for, you know, just giving that background of the term. Because just like for any... I feel like term describing race and racism or black lives, there, it has a way of being co-opted, right? To veer away from its meaning and origins, but it is rooted in talking about black women. Um, so the manifestation, I guess, of respectability politics in my life, this is another one that just goes back to childhood. Um, I think it's a tough one, but not really too tough. Um, so growing up in the South, right? I grew up in the South um, here in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I feel like the way it came out definitely was how I was viewed. I feel like from the time you're a child as a Black person to the time you're a dog, right? You're always going to be viewed as an object for a long time. And it's usually under the white gaze, if you will, under white eyes, under white consumption, where you develop your first instance of what it means to be sexualized. Um, and just know, and just all, sexualized and kind of picked apart and kind of viewed like you're not good enough in some ways. So I remember, you know, growing up as a child and I was a smart kid and I give all credits to my mom for like all the hard work she did to make sure I had resources right. Um, but there is always like this fasc fascination from white people, particularly at the school schools I went to with this idea of what it meant for me to be smart and how I guess it just made them feel safe in a way they're, they're like she's not a problem you know and I think that was really bizarre for them to think about like she's not a problem and, and that never sat right with me it never sat right with me with the idea of not being a problem or the idea of like 
they wanted to give me brownie points or like, you know, just wanted to make me act to being like, whoopie do like this great person when they were not treating my other peers that way. And then I remember, and this is common for a lot of young black girls, I was relaxed. I had a relaxed hair growing up. And I remember going from pigtails to having straight hair. And that's when, you know, I started getting questions from white people. And I mean, questions, but statements, you know, to my mom, like, she looks older than what she is. Or, um, like, she looks mixed with something, or, like, something's not right. Like, it's, like, always, like, that question, and, like, I could start seeing them either being on the edge of their seat, kind of confused, and maybe it was a mix of fear, or, like, also, like, that feeling of, like, satisfaction. Like, she's, like, she's looking, she's becoming more palatable, right? And I did not like that. I never liked it. So fast forward to Tulane, I got to the classes, you know, I, I, I was always just raised to be kind and, you know, treat people with respect. And I guess that's a form of respectability politics too, as far as like trying to not necessarily suck up to white people, but to play it safe with them and um, do what you're supposed to do, right? The idea of doing what you're supposed to do. And I remember I got to Tulane and it hit me early on <laughs> that white people, the white people there particularly, did not give a shit about me. They didn't care about my existence, how I showed up in the classroom, a lot of it, whether it was from dorm life to the classroom to meetings with um, the president or, you know, other administrators. It was just, it was just very early on. I was like, they don't care about my existence. And it really wasn't until I got to Tulane, I mean, excuse me, to the University of Cape Town and I started having, making friends there and everything where I found the satisfaction and is this personal satisfaction, that personal feeling of realizing I am, I, there's no need for me to practice respectability politics. Yes, there is a need for some people, right? But like, I do not want to practice it and I know how it can be practiced for survival but I didn't want to practice it to make white people feel safe I realized there was so much power in how I operated and the community I found on the margins um, it was something so beautiful about being in an environment with black people I lived in an all black residence building I lived in a black neighborhood like I was always around black people in Cape Town, even though you, we know Cape Town can, is still viewed as a white city, but it was something so beautiful about being surrounded by Black people where I was accepted for being my size, where it was normal for Black women to sit at lunch and talk about sex and sexuality, um, where there was so much power in understanding our position on the margins and understanding that what we had to do was for ourselves and for each other. Thank you. Um, and I like that you were naming that you kind of had an understanding of your power on the margins, because I feel like it's very easy for us to forget um, that even though we are marginalized or oppressed, that we still have um, within group power and we also have out of group power and just like finding ways to kind of harvest that for the betterment of ourselves and, you know, our communities. So mm -hmm. thank you for that. And you touched on sexuality, which was kind of be kind of one of mine. Um, I would say we're both pretty like sex positive, but I, I think even as someone who advocates for reproductive justice and I'm very publicly sex positive, I mm -hmm. still feel this um, restraint about talking about my specific sex life. And I kind of, um, feel like I can't really do that because I might be viewed a certain way, even though I operate in spaces like reproductive justice, which are the most accepting for these conversations, but still feeling like I'm always going to have that white gaze on me regardless. Like, I want to go to graduate school, you know, go to get my MD. I want to do this and do that. And I'm still going to be viewed um, through the white gaze. And I have to make sure that what I put out into the world won't be too negative for them. Like, I give an inch but not take a mile or whatever just like making sure that I operate in a space that I won't 
completely burn bridges with people who already have a negative view of people like me. So I feel like that's something that's difficult for me, even though I'm already advocating for these issues. So I can only imagine how it would be for people who aren't operating in reproductive justice or sex positive spaces. Um, and I'm wondering, have you ever felt any like issues around your sexuality or like the amount of sex you have or anything that you do relating to sex with in terms of respectability politics? I think I, I agree with you. I definitely understand that experience of what it means, um, like where we, we feel like we're in these spaces and we are in these spaces. It's not a feeling, it's like true, but even then we kind of tiptoe on the things that are important to us and a part of our existence. Um, for me, I think, I think it's always an issue. I think for a long time at Tulane, I stopped like I, 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 and plus I was a late bloomer uh, as far as like <laughs> sex, let's be real. Um, but even before then, I think people like even as a virgin, people knew me as being someone who would joke about sex and like always made some type of fun joke about it. I love it. Uh, <laughs> um, but the thing is, I think I veered away from it a lot at Tulane because I just, I didn't feel a sense of safety uh, with talking about it. And I felt like, and like going back to respectability politics, I felt like I had to be one way for people. And this was before I got to the point of like, but like I, I, I had to be, I felt like I had to be one way for people. And oftentimes as a black woman, we feel like we have to be the mammy, right? Or we feel like we have to pull these people to our bosom and let them talk to us and let's hear all their stories. But I felt like they were never making room for me to share the same thing. So I was like, I don't even want to gauge in this. And because a lot of, um, the sex stories were not necessarily sex positive, I don't think, as far as like, I think it's one thing to talk about sex, but I think it's another thing to really dig deep into, well, let's talk about consent as well, and let's talk about pleasure, and let's talk about desires, and let's dig into like, like the nitty gritty, and I think that was one thing for me, but like also another thing, I, I, I tried to steer away as much as possible from heteronormativity and I feel like a lot of things in my surroundings that Tulane were still around what was heteronormative and I feel like that feeds in a lot to like what is respectable um so I I I, I didn't feel I don't know and I'm, I'm still looking I think I'm thankful for my relationship with you where we can talk about such things and I'm thankful for my relationships with the people in Cape Town um, but I don't know of too many other spaces that I have right now to, you know, talk openly without feeling like, like surveillance, you know, like this idea of surveillance. Um, I'm still, I'm still trying to get there. Um, and another thing that I forgot to mention, I'm starting in September. I will start going um, through like a nine month process of becoming a sexuality educator. So like, it's like another thing as far as like, I need to get comfortable with talking about it if I want to educate people about it. Um, but like, I'm also at a very difficult intersection because I'm still like unemployed, not fun employed, I'm unemployed, right? After getting a four year degree, that's a whole nother. That's all another conversation, but it's still like that idea of like, I, I still feel like I have some expectations for people when really I have, I, like, I, like I, I, I just need to show up as I am, but it's always like that idea of like whiteness, capitalism and survival um, that dictates us a lot. Well, first of all, I didn't know that you were going to be a sexuality yeah. educator. You just kept that from me. Um, that's super exciting, though. Uh, you said you're going to start in September. Oh, that'll be fun. We're going. I'm going to have an episode. I just booked an episode with a sexuality educator um, just like two days ago. Irma from she does uh, Deep South Sex Ed. Sex ed. Dirty I think stuff. I know who you're talking. I think mm-hmm. I know who you're talking about. See, and I didn't even know you were a sexuality educator. I could hit you. Not up yet. Not yet in training, whatever, but, um, congratulations on that, and I was, I was taking notes of what you were saying, and then you said that, and I got completely, um, <laughs> off track, one second, oh, I know what I was gonna say, so, um, 
I definitely agree with what you were saying about in spaces where we talk about sex, it's not necessarily sex positive. It's just like discussions of sex. And I also feel like if I'm in a space um, at Tulane, it's probably going to be like a white space because, you know, it's PWI and we're talking about sex and, you know, Surge is very white and we're talking about sex um, and they're sharing their stories. I still feel like where I have to dampen mine or only share certain parts because of the stereotypes about black women and about our sexuality and how we're promiscuous and we're this and we're that, that white women don't necessarily have stereotypes about white women or like fragility and like all these other things that can be oppressive as well, but look different than what it looks like for black women. And I feel like I have to take on the burden of distancing myself from those stereotypes, even if I embody some of them. Like I don't have the freedom to just be what I want to be and who I am because I have to make sure that I'm making myself and my community look better than what the stereotypes present us as. And, and, and that's another thing, Kia, is like also like, don't you feel it's always, it's like, um, it's from, I think it's from a piece with Yvette Abrahams. I don't know the exact quote, so, but it's like, the all already and always sexualized or something like that but like on the same note it's like also having to deal with the comments i guess of people like like for example if you were to share some of your stories or experiences in search you already know what the responses would be like kia like oh like you know and it's like but if we're looking at the mission and the name of search, there should not be like a whole Kia kind of thing. It should be like, oh, yeah. And like, you know, just interrogating it more, but in a positive way. But I feel like we're, we all, we all already get comments, like even from what we wear, like I could wear something and people are like, oh, Sarah, like, look at you. But who is it often coming from? White women, white people. And it's like, I'm, I'm not here to fit any mold for you because we also have to think about respectability, respectability politics is a mode of, um, I feel like when it is practiced, it's a mode of people, Black people trying to survive oftentimes, right, in white spaces, but it's also something as it is, it's an operation for the state, right, as far as like if it's practiced in a certain way and if white people approve and it usually if they approve it is equates to their safety then job well done but like what is lost at the end of that what what piece of humanity for black people is being lost when we practice you know um respectability of politics what happens when black women don't feel safe or feel like something will be lost um, by us having conversations about sex. Yes, something will be lost because we miss out on the opportunities to have this sisterhood. You know what I mean? Who cares about white people? But we miss out on the opportunities to create that sex positivity that we need in our Black communities, right? We need to have more conversations about consent. We need to have conversations about pleasure and what that looks like for our survival, you know? Um, but it's so important. Even I was with two, three black girls yesterday. We were outside and casually, not really talking about sex, but like mentioning it, you know. And even when I was telling them something about it, I lied in part of the story. Like to like, I'm talking about sex, but I can't give you all my tea because I don't want to be judged, even though I'm with black women who I would call my friends. Um, and you know all three of them. But even then, I feel like I have to kind of surveillance what I say just to kind of protect me. And like so much of our self-worth is tied to how we engage in things, particularly sex. And like, if I want to be seen as someone of worth then I need to make sure that um, either my sex life or what I share about my sex life kind of matches the mold and doesn't get too far out of it. So, um, and that could be like number of partners, things that you're doing, who you're doing it with. Um, if your sex acts aren't like in the heteronormative like sphere, all those things. So um, yeah, we definitely got on, oh, go ahead. I, and I also just wanted to share one thing. I feel like, you know, like oftentimes how we have internalized that policing, how we have internalized it could oftentimes interfere with our own healing, right? And our own sharing of trauma and what it means to really share about, like even when we have those connections with 
other black women, those close connections, how we feel like we can oftentimes police the times when we need that healing the most and that sisterhood the most to talk about, well, I had a not so great sex experience, you know what I mean? And this is what happened. Um, I don't know. I think, I think we just, we need to look more to the possibilities um, of what is lost and but what also could be gained if we, if we prove by, and start implementing that distance to respectability and that distance from whiteness into like that closeness of what we need for each other definitely and this is like pretty off topic but um i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it looks like to believe victims and survivors and put them at the forefront while also um kind of thinking with an abolitionist framework and transformative justice framework where we don't just completely get rid of or cancel um, perpetrators of violence and just continue to be mindful that um, mindful of the humanity of these people even when they do commit violence and how we can hold both of those things true because as someone who you know I'm a young woman and I'm new to like abolition and transformative justice and so um, that's been one thing of contention for me that I don't really know how to navigate. We have this idea like I, I let me just say this you spoke on abolition and you spoke on you know not giving up or like canceling someone right and i think that also ties into disposability and like as far as like black people are already so disposable you know under the state but what does it look like when we dispose each other in our own personal relationships but i feel like that also comes from this policing and the suppression of dialogue and communication and like I mean, you and i both know from like our own experiences like <laughs> dialogue probably isn't going to you know lead or fix the movement right but i think oftentimes we place ourselves we place a lot on ourselves a lot of suppression on ourselves and like you went through that whole mental process of like what to do what to do and that was, and, and it was, it's hard because that at that point it was individual, you know, and like I, in a perfect world, it wouldn't be individual, it would be collective, but it's just hard when we've been told for so long, even from, you know, from our existence in this country, like, sh shut up, like, we don't need to speak as Black people. And so what does that look like to now deal with talking and, and, to go against the norm for us to build our own i don't know that's a tough one <laughs> yeah definitely um <laughs> we are we're going all over respectability politics which is really good um, i'm enjoying this conversation but a little off of the uh sexuality part of respectability politics um, I was wondering your thoughts on how we've seen respectability politics manifest um, with the murdering of black people or the um, like police brutality or the just like following and like stalking of black people um, and how we equate their murder or anything that happens to them um, with like the embodiment of respectability politics, like with the black man who was birding and how the white woman was calling the police just because he was existing and how people were saying, oh, this is a Harvard birder. He's works for the Smithsonian. He does whatever he does and kind of equating his worth with his titles and the way he embodies respectability politics and how that can be um, anti-black and how that can be really harmful to the movement and to black lives. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, definitely this idea of credentials. You know, oftentimes credentials has been viewed as this way of keeping black people safe, but we're starting to realize that means nothing, right? Um, but also credentials, but on the flip side, even with the recent, like the um, murder um, in um, Wisconsin and then um, the shooting um, of an r, &R um, black man Lafayette and the so many others, even with, I remember this with Mike Brown, how white, white people and the media which is tied to whiteness how they always want to bring up a person's track like record their record their criminal history or whatever the case is is like no don't don't villainize this person right now do not villainize this person because if this even if this person went and oftentimes it's, it's a non-violent offense right 
if this even if this person went to had went to jail or prison for a nonviolent crime, or even if this person was like the guy in the park, you know, with a list of degrees, they're not safe. We're not. We're living in a place where we're not safe as Black people, but and also we're in a place where we're not meeting the standards of white people to make them feel safe. So it's like you know, it's like our existence is like. I, I just don't know, and I've been grappling with this because in fall of 2018, I took critical race theory um, at Tulane, and Dr. Moan, the instructor of the course, um, he assigned us a piece by Robin D.G. Kelly called Black Study, Black Struggle. I sent it to you. I don't know if you <laughs> but no, it's such an important piece because it serves as the summary of what took place at Mizzou and what took place around the time of um, Black Lives, the first uprising, right, of Black Lives Matter and the student activism side. It also served as more so of the warning for the following years after that, as far as for Black student activists, do not do not get comfortable with this idea of reform from the ivory tower, or do not get comfortable with this idea of presidents or universities giving you this one little thing that you've already should have had, right? Don't, don't think of that as acceptance or love. And I think that's the most important thing right now with respectability politics as far as like you know, I, I, I've been looking for jobs in diversity and inclusion. I'm not going to lie, but like even with these corporations, right? Um, how they're they're all like running to start. Like <laughs> my sister loves to say, <laughs> white people realize black people were here, um, were born in June or something like that. And so you know, over the summer, all these corporations they're running. They're trying to practice diversity and inclusion, these equity and belonging um, offices and departments. But even for people, Black people in the workplace, we should not see that as inclusion or acceptance. Um, and we should look at the harm and we, we should just be on high alert of what, what that is. I don't know. I'm just, I know I'm probably not answering this question, but I think I'm just in the space of thinking no matter what we do, nothing is going to protect us right now. And like, I don't know. It's, it's all about the community that I, it's not even like the communities that we are trying to build. Yes, about that. But also the communities that we are trying to sustain as so many of us are dying. Um, yes, definitely. And then you touched on how we try to mask these titles to kind of fill this level of protection and you said it credentials mean nothing and that makes me think of um the maternal mortality rate and even as your income increases and as your education level increases your um your the maternal mortality rate is the same so a black woman with a phd is just as likely to die as a black woman without a high school diploma and so it really like gets to the root of the problem of racism and systemic racism and not like like how white people want to say, oh, it's class and classism and all these things. And like these credentials will, will protect me. And if, oh, if I'm an MD, you know, I'm not likely to die, but all those things don't matter. Cause at the end of the day, these, these issues are rooted in the, the problem of racism. So I'm really glad that you named that. Um, but we are almost out of time. Thank you so much for this uh, conversation. Y'all don't know, but when Sarah first joined, I was very obviously not in it. I was not feeling good. I didn't really want to, I've had a bad day basically. And um, and she could tell without me saying anything, but I feel like this conversation has left me on a better note. And I feel like my night will be better because I was able to talk to you. So thank you for that. But one thing that I ask um, every guest speaker um, is really about community and how you build community and what community means to you and what impact it has had to have other relationships with um, other Black women. Yeah, <laughs> well, thank you for all of that, Kia, and just thank you for the work that you're doing. Even, and that's another thing, even on her bad days, she's still doing the work. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's so funny that you're bringing this up. I was talking to my therapist, who is a Black woman, on Monday about this. Um, because although we have social media, and we have different ways of staying connected with the people in our lives. I definitely feel like the pandemic 
is just it's 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 awful right <laughs> it's just awful and it's a hard time right now um especially for me because i did not see myself returning to free from my hometown in a place where i've always felt outcasted and never felt like i had like a community here um so it's been difficult so she's been asking me this question of what does it mean to have community what 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 can how can you imagine the idea of comfort and this idea that we we deserve that comfort, right? Um, and so with your question right now with the community, I think I think for me is what I would like to see and what I would like to foster as well um, and join in is more trauma-informed groups. Um, black people, we're dealing with a lot with grief, um, with trauma, with just seeing black life and black death and seeing it deteriorate um, while also having to deal with other things in our daily lives, whether that is sexual assault, whether that is losing a job, just trying to survive. Um, so I, I think I just want to see more openness of that and just more spaces for us and by us. Um, and just some of the things that I want to foster for myself is just is just returning to the roots, returning to our ancestors and, you know, reading more Black feminism and just losing myself in the theory, but also trying to understand how can I make this a part of my life? How can I show up for the Black women that I love and care about, right? Um, but also how can I show up for myself? Because um, that's a big part of community. If you're not taking care of yourself, then how are you going to show up for other people? Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Um, and didn't you meet one of your best friends in Cape Town? Like, super recently? Like, <laughs> you, you went to the diaspora and you met someone that you're gonna, that's gonna be in your life forever, like. Yeah, and, and you know, that's a funny thing, Kia, like, out of all, I don't know who's going to listen to this, so hopefully no one will feel bad. Um, you're obviously like a very a very close friend and you, you put up with a lot of my BS. Um, <laughs> but one thing about Abby, Abby cares a lot, Abigail. Um, Abigail cares a lot. She's from Ethiopia, but we met at the University of Cape Town. Um, and she's now based here in the US. Um, but I have one friend who came to visit me throughout my four years um, at Tulane and you know he goes to LSU and Baton Rouge so it's easy for him but like out of all of my friends like out of all my relatives and everything I feel like Abby was like the first person to like take the time and just you know just make that effort to come see me and we spent a weekend together and I think you know it's so easy for us to see each other like you and I and like our other friends to see the struggles that we're going through you know at Tulane but it was so beautiful to have someone from the outside come in and say like you're dealing with a lot these people do not care about you um but also like saying like how worthy I am um so yeah so that like like I said Cape Town was life-changing so that's beautiful oh my goodness uh, I've always wanted to go to Ghana it's so expensive oh you want to after hearing your story in South Africa, I'm like, okay, yeah. I have to find a way to get there because it was life-changing for Sarah, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's all I have. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. This has been great.